Would you consider yourself a religious person? You say, well, I consider my faith in Christ important, so I suppose so. Let me ask the question another way. Would other people consider you a religious person? Would they say that they observe you uh, doing religious practices, going to church, uh, taking communion, reading your Bible, giving money to the church, uh, tr uh, trying to avoid tobacco and not drinking too much, not watching certain kinds of movies? Jesus was not religious, nor should we be. Uh, Jesus is not a religion, but a relationship. So be Christ-centered, not religion-centered. Teenager, young single, young married, parent, empty nester, how can you have a relationship with Jesus without being religious? Jesus had a close relationship with God the Father, but he was not known for being religious. He was not all about observing religious practices. In fact, it was his failure to observe religious practices that got him in trouble with the religious establishment. I want to suggest two ways that you can have a close relationship with Jesus without being religious. But first, I want to ask, why was the religious establishment so opposed to Jesus? The first century religious establishment in Israel hated Jesus. When I talk about the religious establishment, I'm talking primarily about two groups. The first were the Sadducees. Best way I've found to remember the Sadducees is to remember every time you read about them in the Gospels, they were angry. So that's why we say they were sad, you see. See, you'll never forget that again. They were the party in power. They ran the religious and civic government. Uh, they did all functions of government except taxation and capital punishment. They were the aristocracy. They were the wealthiest segment of society. Since they were in power, they hated anyone who rocked the boat. And Jesus definitely rocked the boat. Then there were the Pharisees. Anytime you read in the Gospels about the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law, or the experts in the law, you're, you're, you're reading about the Pharisees. Their roots went back to the Babylonian captivity. The people who returned to Judah from Babylon uh, felt badly about their disobedience to God during the time of Jeremiah. Uh, so they had a renewed zeal for the law. So beginning with Ezra, the scribes sought to teach people God's law. As years went by, the scribes wrote more and more about their commentary about the law rather than the scripture themselves. They collected their traditions in the Mishnah and the Talmud. Uh, their task was to make a hedge around the law so you knew exactly what you needed to do to obey God. Uh, they zealously accepted their role as watchdogs, so they carefully monitored the activities of any teacher, and they took a special interest in Jesus. Now, why did they hate Jesus? Let me suggest five reasons. One, he taught with authority. Now, most of the religious leaders were from Jerusalem, Judea. Jesus came from Galilee, so he was suspect religiously. He was also untrained. So they said when he came into Jerusalem, who is this untrained Galilean who walks in like he owns the place? 
When the Pharisees and the Sadducees heard that the people were amazed by his authoritative teaching, they became jealous. The people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. When the religious leaders taught, they taught, uh, they quoted the Old Testament, the Mishnah, the Talmud. When Jesus taught, he said, you have heard, but I say to you. He talked like he was the final authority. Two, they objected that Jesus prophesied about the destruction of the temple and refused to grant any sign other than the resurrection. The temple... It took them 46 years to build. And Jesus said, the temple's going to be destroyed, and three days later, I'll raise it up again. They thought, how in the world? They didn't realize that he wasn't talking about the physical brick temple, but the temple of his body, that he was going to die, and then three days later, be raised to life. They asked him for signs so that they could know by what authority he did what he had done. As the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was assigned to the Ninevites, so also will the Son of Man be to this generation. So Jonah's sign was he was in the belly of a whale three days and three nights. Jesus' sign was he, he would die and be in the grave three days and three nights. Uh... They wanted a sign so they could know who Jesus was. Imagine it. Jesus healed the blind. He raised people from the dead. He cast demons out of people, things that only God could do. Yet they wanted more signs. Jesus refused to give them any other sign except his resurrection because he knew the state of their heart that they would never believe. The only sign he would give them was the resurrection. And sure enough, after he was raised from the dead, many of the religious leaders still refused to believe in him. Make sure you're not like them. Maybe you're not a follower of Christ. Possibly you've asked God for a sign so you could know if Jesus really is God's son. God answers that kind of prayer, but he also knows the state of our heart if we're really serious. He knows whether or not you're playing heads I win, tails you lose, which goes like this. If you pray for God to like heal your mother and then he doesn't, you say, see, I knew there wasn't a God. Or if he does answer your prayer, you say, well, it was just a natural occurrence. He knows that no matter what he does, you'll never believe. So why should he answer your prayer? Here's something that helped me. We say to God, show me and I'll trust you. But God says, no, no, trust me and I'll show you. If you say to God, if you show me that Jesus is your son, I promise you that I will follow him the rest of my life. That's giving him your trust ahead of time. If you give me evidence, I will follow you. And he will answer that kind of prayer. Three, it drove them crazy that Jesus claimed to be God or the Son of God. When Jesus forgave people's sins, 
Clearly they knew only God could forgive sins, so that was a claim to be God. When he said he and the Father were one, it drove them nuts. They were monotheists. There's only one God. If you're Jewish or Muslim, you're a monotheist. There's only one God. To believe Jesus, you don't have to throw out your monotheism or your Jewish or Muslim culture. You just have to expand your thinking to the possibility that there is one God in three persons. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. If you're Jewish, you already believe in the Holy Spirit. In Genesis, it says the Spirit of God was moving across the waters. In 1 Samuel, it says the Spirit of God came upon King Saul. So it's not a stretch to believe God in three persons. For it bothered them that Jesus loved people more than their rules. Jesus spent a lot of time with tax collectors, prostitutes, beggars. They loved him. The Pharisees and Sadducees refused to associate with these social undesirables. They couldn't stand it that Jesus put them ahead of their rules. Jesus revered the Old Testament law. What he rejected were the commentaries about the law, the scribal uh, traditions that gradually supplanted the scriptures. For example, Jesus was constantly in hot water with the religious establishment for Sabbath observance. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields and his disciples began to pick some heads of grain, rub them in their hands and eat the kernels. Some of the Pharisees asked, why are you doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? Now, the, the disciples hadn't done anything unlawful. The scriptures uh, cited that uh, a, a poor person, uh, every so often there'd be a row that was allowed for people in need to come and eat. What you couldn't do is move on to a farm with your combine and, and take over. The issue for the Pharisees was that this was being done on the Sabbath. Jesus answered them, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God and taking the consecrated bread, he ate what is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then Jesus said to them, The Son of Man, that's himself, is Lord of the Sabbath. His point was, if David could take bread that was reserved for the priests and give it to his soldiers. Since he, Jesus, was greater, he called himself Lord of the Sabbath. That's a name for God in the Old Testament. He could certainly do that for his disciples. Since he's the Lord who created the Sabbath, he decides what can be done on the Sabbath. Well, his disregard for their rules drove them bonkers. On another Sabbath... He went into the synagogue and was teaching, and a man was there whose right hand was shriveled. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Then Jesus said to them, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? He looked around at them all, and they were silent. And said to the man, stretch out your hand. He did so, and his hand was completely restored. When Jesus saw this man with a shriveled hand, 
He had compassion on him. It didn't matter to Jesus what day of the week it was. He wanted to heal the man, do what was best for him. The religious leaders didn't give a wit about this man. They just wanted Jesus to adhere to their religious rules. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were furious that he'd healed a man on the Sabbath and began to discuss with one another what they might do to Jesus. In other words, how to get rid of him, to kill him. They heaped the Sabbath with so many rules of what a person could do that they lost love for people. They missed the big picture that the Sabbath was a day for us to worship God and love people. They turned the Sabbath into a day of bondage. For example, the scribes taught that if one of your animals fell into a pit on the Sabbath, you couldn't pull the animal out. However, you could put food in the, in the hole, and you could put pillows in the hole so maybe your animal could crawl out. They taught that if a fire broke out in your house on the Sabbath, you couldn't carry anything out. But you could put as many clothes as you could get on and, and then walk out. Then you could strip down and come back in and put as many more as you could get on and walk out again. And you could invite as many friends as you had to come and do the same thing. They turned the Sabbath into this whole maze of, of rules and loopholes of what you could do. That's why Jesus called the religious leaders blind guides, hypocrites, snakes, sons of hell, and whitewashed tombs. <laughs> no wonder they hated him. Finally, the religious establishment hated Jesus, and this is what ultimately got him killed, because he rocked the boat politically. Mark concludes the same story of Jesus healing a man with a shriveled hand on the Sabbath with this fascinating tidbit. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. The Herodians. Herodians were followers of Herod. He was a wicked king. They represented the antithesis of everything the Pharisees stood for. Purity of faith was no concern to the Herodians. All they cared about was staying good, in good grace with uh, the Romans and keeping Herod in power. The Pharisees stood for the purity of the Israelite faith against the encroachments of modern Greek and Roman thought. For the Pharisees to join forces with the Herodians was a vulgar compromise. And that's precisely the point. They would stop at nothing to get rid of Jesus, even if it meant consorting with the Herodians. You do not want to be like the Sadducees and Pharisees all consumed with religious practices. You want to be like Jesus. Jesus is not a religion, but a relationship. So be Christ-centered, not religion-centered. So how can we avoid being religious and become more like Jesus? Let me share two ways. One, love people. Jesus loved people more than their rules. Jesus came to save us. He came to know you and me. Frequently in the Gospels, we're told that Jesus ate with tax collectors and sinners. The religious leaders would have nothing to do with these people. 
several places in the Gospels we read that Jesus was in the company of tax collectors, prostitutes, and notorious sinners. They were irresistibly drawn to him. Why? Because Jesus came to restore people to God and they could feel his love for them. He didn't judge them and they loved him for it. Jesus continues to reach out to lost people today. How? Through you and me. While on earth, before his, his death and resurrection, Jesus said, greater things, talking about what he did, greater things than what you see me do, you will do. How's that? He saw it through the work of the Holy Spirit, multiplied through millions of us. When Jesus was on earth, he just had two hands, two feet, and one tongue. Now, there are millions of us that can minister to people in the world. As we go out to inspire people to follow Jesus, amazing things happen. A couple weeks ago, I told you about Chuck Colson. Tough, wily, nasty, tenaciously loyal to President Richard Nixon. At age 40, he became the most prominent attorney in our country. Special counsel to the president. Then came Watergate, convictions. Colson went to jail. When he came out of jail, this line was reported in uh, December 1973. Colson makes decision for Christ. The story jarred Washington. Many suspected a gimmick. There was unbelieving laughter. You may know that Chuck Colson started prison fellowship, but how many of you know the name of the man who led him to Christ? I doubt if any of you do. But I thank God for people like him with the wisdom uh, to uh, know how to talk to people and lead people to Christ. In Colson's book, Born Again, he writes of the conversation he had with that man, Tom Phillips. Uh, Brainerd tells me that you've become very involved in some religious activities. Phillips, I said to him, yes, that's true, Chuck. I've accepted Jesus Christ. I've committed my life to him, and it has been the most marvelous experience of my whole life. Apparently, Phillips had figured out what he was going to say when someone said to him, I hear you've become a Christian, or I hear you're a follower of Jesus. You and I have to do the same thing. What are we going to say? Later that year, Colson felt drawn to go visit Phillips at his home in the Boston area. Phillips turned the conversation to spiritual matters. Colson writes, we were both silent for a while. As I groped for understanding, Tom got up and turned on two small lamps on end tables in the corners of the porch. Phillips is talking. One night I was in New York on business and noticed that Billy Graham was speaking at Madison Square Garden. I went, curious, I guess, hoping that maybe I'd find some answers. What Graham said that night put it all into place for me. I saw what was missing, the personal relationship with Jesus Christ, the fact that I hadn't ever asked him into my life, hadn't turned my life over to him. So I did it that very night at the crusade. That night, Phillips gave uh, Colson a copy of Mere Christianity. He said, read this and let me know what you think. Put his hand on his shoulder and he said, take it easy. I hope to see you again soon. Then Colson writes, I didn't say much. I was afraid my voice would crack. But I had the strong feeling that I would see him soon. I couldn't wait to read his little book. Outside in the darkness, the iron grip I'd kept on my emotions began to relax. 
Tears welled up in my eyes as I groped in the darkness for the right key to start my car. Angrily, I brushed them away and started the engine. What kind of weakness is this? I said to nobody. As I drove out of Tom's driveway, the tears were flowing uncontrollably. There were no streetlights, no moonlight. The car headlights were flooding illumination before my eyes, but I was crying so hard that it was like I was trying to swim underwater. I pulled to the side of the road, not more than 100 yards from Tom's driveway, the tires sinking into the soft mounds of pine needles. I remember hoping that Tom and Gert wouldn't hear my sobbing. The only sound other than the chirping of crickets that penetrated the still of the night. With my face cupped in my hands, head leaning forward against the wheel, I forgot about machismo, about pretenses, about fears of being weak. And as I did, I began to experience a wonderful feeling of being released. Then came the strange sensation that the water was not only running down my cheeks, but surging through my whole body as well, cleansing and cooling as it went. They weren't tears of sadness and remorse, nor of joy, but somehow tears of relief. And then I prayed my first prayer. If you've never given your life to Christ, listen to what he writes. God, I don't know how to find you, but I'm going to try. I'm not much the way I am now, but somehow I want to give myself to you. I didn't know how to say more, so I repeated over and over the words, take me. I hadn't accepted Christ. I still didn't know who he was. My mind told me it was important to find that out first, to be sure that I knew what I was doing. And that I meant it and would stay with it. Only that night, something inside me was urging me to surrender to water to whom I did not know. Now get this. After reading Mere Christianity, Colson wrote, I knew the time had come for me. I could not sidestep the central question. Lewis, the writer of Mere Christianity, or God, had placed squarely before me. Was I to accept without reservations Jesus Christ as Lord of my life? It was like a gate before me. There was no way to walk around it. I would step through or I would remain outside. A maybe or I need more time was kidding myself. And so early that Friday morning while I sat alone at the ocean I love, words I had not been certain I could understand or say fell naturally from my lips. Lord Jesus, I believe you. I accept you. Please come into my life. I commit it to you. Through the low-keyed, faithful witness of Tom Phillips, Chuck Colson came to Christ. Then through his ministry in prisons, thousands of others have come to Christ. If you're faithful to that family member or friend in your life who doesn't know Christ and are able to Bring them to Christ. Who knows what impact they will have on other people. When we love other people, no matter how far they seem from Christ, big things happen. For people are attracted to Jesus. They're not attracted to rules. Stay away from the rules. And that leads to my second point. Be Christ-centered, not rule-centered in your attempts to know and please God. Am I suggesting we no longer need any rules for appropriate behavior? No. But we must also always stay Christ-centered 
in our approach to rules. As we make our choices, the best questions to ask are, what did Jesus teach? What would Jesus do? What would Christ want me to do in this situation? Not, what are the rules? St. Augustine said, love God and do as you please. He was right. Love Christ and you can live in freedom. When I went to seminary in Chicago, I, was, I became the head leader of a young life club. And Jory became, uh, my wife became the head girl leader. And we asked her to lead uh, a group of students from Chicago to Young Lives Camp uh, in Colorado that summer. I was working here in Portland. And one of the girls that went with her, a girl named Julie, far from God, made no attempt to, to claim any faith. She knew hardly anything about Christianity. And she gave her life to Christ that week. So when they got back to Chicago, Jory began meeting with her, discipling her every week. They would study the scriptures, they'd pray together, but they never talked about rules. Julie, this girl, was notorious for her partying. Friday and Saturday nights, lots of drinking, lots of drugs. But Jory never talked to her about that. She just talked to her about Jesus and growing in her faith. And one day, Julie said, you think I should stop my partying? You think Jesus would want that? And, and Jory said, she didn't, she didn't comment on that. She just said, keep following Christ, keep reading the Bible, keep learning more about him, and ask him what you should do. And a few weeks later, she felt convicted by Christ, and she gave up all her partying. Her life was transformed. Interesting side story is, as, as our son Joel began touring the United States playing tennis tournaments, when he was 14, he was playing a tournament in Salt Lake City, and Julie and her husband, he also became a Christian through that Young Life Club. Uh, they hosted Joel in their home for that week. Jesus is not a religion, but a relationship. So be Christ-centered, not religion-centered. As you make decisions, ask, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus want me to love this person? Love Christ and love people so you inspire people to follow Jesus like Tom Phillips did with Chuck Colson and Chuck Colson did with many prisoners. Invite people to join us for our live stream. Many of you have invited friends and family members in cities outside of Portland to watch with us. Or invite them, if they live in town, to join us in our service, in our building. And if you've never invited Christ into your life, you can do so today, just like Chuck Colson did. Father, thank you that Christian faith is not a religion, but it's a relationship with your son, Jesus Christ. And we want to come into that relationship with him. I want to invite you right now to pray. If you're a follower of Christ and you realize maybe you've gotten a little more rule-centered, religion-centered than you should be, tell him you want to stay Christ-centered and relationship-centered. If you've never given your life to Christ, why don't you tell him today? You believe he's the Son of God and you want him to come into your life and you want to follow him. You pray. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for coming to this world and showing us God, showing us yourself, the Son of God. In Jesus' name we pray.